Have you ever heard the uh, phrase or the expression that if two people think the same thing or the same way about everything, um, that one of them is unnecessary? I kind of grew up in an older neighborhood. Like I was surrounded by like my great grandparents um, and, and their friends, and so they they used to say that pretty often. And it's often quoted in the context of business and marriage, and generally with the add-on um, that it, at the at the best that relationship is going to be boring. If two people are in a relationship and they think the same way, then at best that relationship will be boring. Um, and at worst, the, that relationship is just completely pointless. Why well, have two people who are exactly alike in all ways? Like that doesn't make sense. And the idea behind it is that you want at least a little bit of disagreement. You want a little bit um, of someone who's going to challenge you in just small ways that will help you grow um, and help you get better and just in, and understand life more, who will challenge your way of thinking. Um, but I think if we really think about this phrase um, and we really put it to test against all of our experiences, um, I think we'll find that this, this phrase, this expression, is almost totally and patently false. I don't think it's, I don't think it's true because if we really think about it, all of, our, all of our experiences tell us that the best, the sweetest, the most fulfilling times in our lives are the times when we're in deep agreement with other people. The times that we find or we discover um, new things about our, our spouses. Those are good times. When we find out new things about our kids. When we find new things about our friends that help us understand them more, love them more. Those are the sweet times. Those are the exciting times. Those are the times that we build our relationships on. Not the times that we disagree with one another. And the cool thing about it all is that I think this was God's intended purpose for us. God intended for us to unite under Christ, under our mutual love for Christ. That's what He wants us to do as His church. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about being united in Christ. Our scripture comes from um, Psalm 133 and John 17. Um, and before I, before I read it, I just want to remind you, um, as John prayed, that this would be efficacious. This is God's word. Um, if you take anything from, from me being up here today, I pray that you, you hear God's word because it's, it's effectual. It's gonna, it has the power to change lives. Not what I have to say, but what God has to say. So when I read this, I pray that you you hear it and let it wash over you. So Psalm 133. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. And then John 17, verse 21 through 23. I do not ask for these only. He's talking about his apostles there. I do not ask for only the apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Let's pray. 
Father, this is your word, and we want to treat it with honor and respect. And I pray that you, um, right now, give me clarity um, and let me be concise with what I have to say about your word. That you would um, unite us um, through your word in your Holy Spirit. That we would leave here today um, wanting to dwell in unity, as your word says. Um, Lord, be with us now. Help us to, to focus only on you and only on your word. It is in your son's precious and holy name I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so to understand the psalm, we have to understand the context. I know the Old Testament sometimes gets really symbolic, gets really um, poetic, and the psalms is probably the most poetic because it's a book of songs. Um, But this psalm, um, it it gives you the context right at the top. It says, it's a song of ascent. If you look in your Bible, right under the big 133, it says, Song of Ascent of David, which tells us its context right there. It, It points it out for us. The song is a song of ascent, which means that its purpose was for the Israelites to sing the song as they walked up to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. It was meant to be, it was meant to be sung as the Israelites were gathering together to celebrate their, their biggest event, basically. And the, the point of this particular song, that was the, the purpose of this, of songs of Advent, or Ascension, sorry, of Ascension. Um, but the purpose of this song was that it was going to paint vivid images into their minds and cause them to look forward to the work that Christ was going to do in their lives as they came to worship Him. The whole point was for them to look forward to see what God was going to do, what activity God was going to do in their lives as they gathered together in Jerusalem. The, the Israelites who sung this song, they would have understood that. They would, there would have been some implicit understanding um, that, oh, okay, this is what we're doing. This is why we're singing this. But for us, as a modern audience, we have to ask ourselves two kind of slightly different questions. The first being, how did this psalm actually accomplish this purpose? How did this psalm accomplish painting vivid images into the Israelites' heads? Because I don't know about you, but until recently, I really didn't know what it meant for oil to run down Aaron's beard or for the dew of Hermon to fall on Mount Zion. That doesn't, like, there's a disconnect there. Um, maybe you know Middle Eastern geography. I don't. Um, and so I had to do a little bit of studying, and I'm going to try to explain it here. Um, but David, King David, who wrote this psalm, he paints three pictures. He paints three pictures. We're going to go through each of them. Um, the first thing he or makes three points and, and paints two pictures, really. The first is he, he makes an anecdotal statement. He just kind of makes a common knowledge statement um, about unity. The second is he makes a, a metaphor about unity regarding ceremonial law, <laughs> um, which doesn't sound interesting, but it is when, you, when we get there. And the third is he makes a, a metaphor about um, the geographical a situation of Jerusalem. And they all are pointing to, uh, to unity as their, as their focus. So we look at that first thing, the anecdotal evidence. Paul, or Paul, David, he looks at, he, he says something very common knowledge. He, he makes a theory about life, and it says this. He says, how good and pleasant it is when the brothers dwell in unity. It's pretty, like, obvious, right? He's basically saying, how nice is the home when siblings aren't at each other's throats? How, how nice is it when your brother and sisters aren't fighting with one another? How, how great is it when your kids aren't rebelling against you? 
how great is it when your, your parents are experiencing a, a great time of, of love within their marriage? He's literally saying life is more pleasant when there's no family drama. That's, I mean, that's, that's essentially what he's saying. Isn't it? Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. That's the first point. Nice and easy, short, sweet. Um, I think it's, it's pretty obvious. And, and you can, when you read that, hopefully you saw, you saw that as well. It's, it's nice when there's no family drama. But then things get a little bit harder for us to understand as a, as a modern audience, someone who doesn't make pilgrimages to Jerusalem every year for Passover. Um, it gets a little bit um, more difficult for us to understand just naturally. The first, he uses a meta- the first metaphor he uses um, is disconnected from our situation, and it calls to mind the ordination of a high priest for all of Israel. Have you ever been to one of those? I don't think so. I haven't. Um, I, I've never be, I've never seen a high priest be ordained. I've never like thought to look into what it meant for a high priest to be ordained. Um, but he, he, David likens unity to oil that flows down Aaron's beard and onto the collar of his robes. And for the Israelites, that would have been a very um, a very vivid picture. That would have been a very uh, clear um, picture for them. They would have immediately recognized that as the ordination of the high priest. His, his, David's, um, David's reference to Aaron was, uh, was, was clear to them that he's talking about the high priest here. So as the oil runs down his beard and onto the collar of his robes, it was already painting a picture of the ordination of the high priest. And during the ordination of the high priest, they would pour oil on his head. They would anoint him with oil. And it wasn't like a drop of oil. You know, we use um, essential oils all the time. It wasn't like a little drop of essential oil to like rub on your neck when you got a headache or something like that. It was like, uh, when I looked it up, it was anywhere from 7 to 10 liters of oil. So two and a half gallons of oil being poured on this guy in front of all of Israel, which would just be weird to us, I think. Um, which it was. But 7 to 10 liters of oil being poured on this guy... And so when David says unity is like the oil that flows down the beard of Aaron and onto the collar of his robes, it probably would have been more ap- applicable for us to realize that, um, that this was more like he's being completely soaked in oil. right? He's being completely covered in oil. And that was a, and that was a beautiful picture. Because for them, that oil represented... God's presence. For them, that oil represents God's presence coming onto the high priest. And because it came on the high priest, who was the bridge between God and His people, it meant that God was entering into a worship service with His people. It gets even more um, vivid when we look back into Leviticus and we find out that the high priest's robes were very ornate and they were highly symbolic. And on the shoulders of the high priest's robes were precious gems. And on those gems they had engraved um, the twelve tribes of Israel, their names, the names for each tribe. And so as this oil ran down his head and on his beard and covered his robes, the, the Spirit was literally resting on, uh, on the tribes. And because they were resting on the tribes, the oil rest, uh, would mingle down and it would cover them completely. And it would connect them. So this oil was a symbol of unity, not with just God, 
Because it, it, it very much signaled unity with God, the oil coming down, being with His people. But it also symbolized unity with each other. Because God in His presence connected the brothers and allowed them to dwell in unity with one purpose. It's really cool for us now because we have the New Testament and we can make connections that maybe the Old Testament audience couldn't have made. But we can see that this was an Old Testament picture of the New Testament reality that Christ came and died for us and gave us His Holy Spirit so that we would dwell with God forever in unity. We, didn't need, we don't need a, a manly high priest to come and be anointed with seven liters of oil. We have Christ whose blood did that for us. So this is an Old Testament picture of a New Testament reality that God dwells with us through His Holy Spirit. And that's the second way He describes unity. First, He says, hey, it's good when brothers dwell together in unity. It's common knowledge. It's obvious. But it's also good and it's God-ordained for us to to dwell together in unity, to be united with God so that we are also united with each other. He makes a second metaphor and a, and a third point, uh, and that's uh, a geographical metaphor. Again, I don't know if any of you are familiar with Middle Eastern geography, um, but I wasn't, so this was, this was kind of lost on me until I did, went on Wikipedia and found some of this stuff out. But Mount Hermon, um, <coughs> sorry, is a 10,000-foot mountain that's just north of Jerusalem. It's a 10,000-foot mountain just north of Jerusalem. And because of its height... <coughs> sorry. <coughs> Ooh. Here we go. Because of, because of its height, it was in the, because it was a, a geographical abnormality, it's a really tall mountain in the middle of the desert. Um, and because of its, its height, it's always snow-capped. Or at least it was back in, the, in that time. I don't know. Global warming may say it's not snow-capped anymore. But it was always snow-capped. It always had snow. And because of that, it caused this weird, bear with me, this is a hard word, meteorological, got it, uh, effect that all the moisture from, from the ground level, the surface level, all of that moisture would evaporate. And normally, because it was a desert, would just evaporate and just kind of disperse. And, and be gone, and it just kept the, dry, the ground dry, and uh, and there's no humidity. It was just a, it was dry. Um, but but all the land around Mount Hermon, as the water evaporated, it would hit the top, like the top area of this mountain. And because it was so cold right there, it would because of the snow, it would immediately condense and fall back to the ground. Um, and so it, you around Mount Hermon, you literally had this like random uh, lush like forest in the middle of a desert. I kind of wish I had, I wish I had a picture to uh, like a top view picture because you'd literally have like this little circle of white from the top of the mountain, then the circle of green, and then just this like light brown circle because there's just this little island in the middle of the desert that was just full of lush vegetation. Um, I, I was reading about a guy's description of this place. He called it a swamp. He was like, it's so humid, it's basically a swamp. So when... David makes this reference to the dew of Hermon. He's literally talking about this random life-filled uh, life portion of the desert. And he's saying, it, this, it, unity is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. And so he's making a, a, a comparison here with another 
Middle Eastern geography place of Mount Zion. And if you didn't know, Mount Zion is basically the exact opposite of Mount Hermon in that it's a dry rock in the middle of the desert. He's saying, he's saying it would be, unity is like the dew of Hermon, the water from Hermon, coming over and being placed on Mount Zion. It's, unity is life-giving. If you'd allow me to kind of make a parallel metaphor, if, if David was writing this psalm today, um, he might kind of make the metaphors like, unity is kind of like the cool glass of water in the cold shower after you've, after you've cut the grass on the hot summer day. Like, if, you, if you've ever... One of my only chores growing up was I had to cut the grass. And I was lazy in, in high school, and so that meant that I never woke up early. And so most of the time I had to cut the grass at like 11 o'clock to 12 o'clock in the morning when it's like 95 degrees. And if you've ever cut the grass when it's 95 degrees, it is just miserable. Um, and so the first thing you do, you, you cut the grass and you smell like gasoline, you're covered with yard clippings, and you're, you just feel gross and you're sticky from all the sweat because um, it's the south and it's just a ton of humidity. You go inside, you drink a glass of water, and you take a cold shower, and you just like are refreshed immediately. So if David, would, if David was alive today, he might be like, it's a cold glass of water on a hot summer day. Would be, would be somewhat, something similar to what he's saying here. It's life-giving. See, Mount Zion, it, it, was, an, it was an abnormality in itself because it, entire civilizations back then would build their lives, build their cities around water. If you didn't have water, you didn't have life. And so the fact that they had this huge city, Jerusalem, on this dry rock in the middle of the desert was weird. Um, but, and all the Israelites would have known that. And they had to dig these huge wells. And so to get the water, they had to dig these huge wells and then they had to pull the water up. And it, was a, it was a chore. It was a hassle. And so David's just saying, man, imagine what it would be like if we just had some of that, that moisture over here. If we could just put a bucket out at night and just let, let it sit, and when we, get, when we come back in the morning, it's full of water because the dew is so heavy. Because that's basically what Mount Hermon was. It's, the dew is so heavy there that it, it literally runs down the trees. Um, it's, it's bizarre. It's exotic. I also think it's important to note that in both metaphors, David likens unity to something that comes down from above and comes down to us. He, both metaphors, in the first one, it's the oil that falls on the high priest's head. On the second one, it's the dew that falls on Mount Zion. Unity comes from top to bottom. We become united with Christ. We become united with God through His Holy Spirit, through His presence. And because we're united with His Spirit, because we're united because of His presence, we can then be connected with one another. We can be united with one another as Jesus prays to, to God in his high priestly prayer, the John 17 that we read, he, he prays for that exact thing. That they would be one as he is one with the Father. That, that we, would be, we would be one. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me. That we would dwell together in unity. So how do we get there? How do we experience this unity that David talks about? He, he talks about it's, it's common knowledge. Hey man, it's great when the family dwells together in unity. It's ordained by God. And when we're connected with God, we experience this greater connection in unity. And then he says it's life-giving and it's energizing. So how do, how do we get that unity now? Well, it takes a little work on our part. True unity takes work on our part. It takes us making decisions kind of day in and day out 
that further unity with one another. It takes decisions um, that sometimes are, is hard to make. And what, what do those decisions look like? Well, I can tell you what they don't look like. Uh, and I think that paints a, a great picture for what it, the, it does look like. Um, Rebecca and I love this show called Parks and Rec. Maybe you've seen it before. It's hilarious. Um, but on that show, there's a character called Ron Swanson. The hat guys know what I'm talking about. It, it, his name is Ron Swanson. And in this show, he's kind of portrayed as the man's man. He's like, he's the guy. He can fix anything. Um, he, drink, he eats basically uh, steak and eggs. That's all he eats. Um, and then he like drinks straight Lagavulin and whiskey out of a bottle like almost every episode. Um, he's just like the man's man. Um, and that, that's what he's portrayed as. But he also prides himself as being a man of very few words. He doesn't, he doesn't talk to a lot of people. And when he does talk, he, he says as few words as possible. And at one point, he's got some amazing quotes. One of my favorite quotes is this. Um, he's talking about getting to know his, um, his co-workers. And he says, he says this. He says, I once worked with a guy for three years. I never learned his name. Best friend I ever had. We still never talk sometimes. Like he... Yeah. He, he, I love it. He has some great quotes. Sometimes he would... Sometimes he would say, sometimes when people think I'm too close to them, I call them by the wrong name just to put them in their place. Um, and while this level of antisocial behavior is pretty extreme, um, we often kind of follow the Ron Swanson model of unity. He, he, he believes that he, the guy he never talks with, the guy whose name he never learned, he's the best friend he ever had. And sometimes that's extreme, but sometimes we follow that, that model. Sometimes we come in here, especially in here, we come in, we get a cup of coffee, maybe get a donut, we walk, we sit in our seat, there are assigned seats that we've kind of assigned ourselves, you know, we sit down and we don't talk to anyone and we, uh, we kind of keep our eyes to the floor, we stand when we're told to stand, we sit when we're told to sit, we sing the songs, we say the creeds, we listen to the sermon, and then we stand up. We might help put the chairs back up if, if you know, we're feeling particularly charitable. And then we walk out. And the only thing that we might say to one another is if someone asks you, hey, how are you? We say, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. How are you? Expecting them to say, oh, I'm fine. And that's it. That's the conversation. We follow the Ron Swanson model. We don't actually engage with one another we forego the, the sweetness, the goodness, the pleasantness of, of unity for the safety and comfort of isolation. Can you imagine if we, if we did that in our marriages? Could you imagine if, like, guys, if you came home from work and you, like, went straight to your office and you, like, did some more work until dinner was ready and you went and had dinner and you might have like a small surface level conversation with your wife then after dinner you go and you sit on your chair and you watch whatever sport is on ESPN at that time and then you might go back and read a little bit and then you go to sleep and then you do that day in and day out. Can you imagine that? Sure there won't be much disagreement in that because you're not talking to your wife so there can't be much disagreement maybe she disagrees with you but you don't know it Um, there, there might never be any fights there might not be any disagreement there but there's not going to be a lot of love and intimacy there either. When we isolate ourselves, we're, we're shutting ourselves off because sometimes unity 
like getting to know people, having a relationship with people can be hard. It can be painful. But also, when we open ourselves up to unity, when we actually pursue people, pursue relationships with one another, pursue getting to know people, we open ourselves up to the sweetest fellowship imaginable. We open ourselves up to getting to know people um, in, a, in a real, deep way. Letting other people know us in a real, deep way. How wonderful is that? How beautiful is that? Maybe you've experienced it. You know. It's, it's so sweet. It's so good. and so pleasant. It's life-giving. God's plan is this for our lives. Is that we would dwell together in unity. David makes this statement. Behold, how good is it when brothers dwell together in unity. That is God's plan for us. That we, as Christians, as Christ's followers, would dwell together with one another. How do we get there? If that's God's plan and we we tend to isolate ourselves, how do we actually get to that point? How do we experience true unity with one another and with God? Well, Jesus um, in John 17, as he prays, kind of gives us some, some ideas of how to do that. He says, he, he prays that we may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Well, the first step is we, we have a relationship with Christ. The first step to experiencing true unity is getting to know Jesus Christ. Because once we're connected with Him vertically, all the other vertical connections that we all share, those become horizontal connections. We get to experience true, deep unity. We get to experience true, deep fellowship with one another because we have the, the one thing in common that's the most important thing. We have faith in Christ. And we have to open ourselves up. So once we have that relationship with Jesus, then we have to open ourselves up to one another. We have to pursue each other. We can't have these conversations where we're like, hey, how are you? Fine. How are you? Fine. We can't have those conversations anymore. We have to have deep, meaningful conversations. We have to get to know stuff about each other so we can ask each other questions. Man, how great would it be if... Like in the church, we have community groups, and those are fantastic. Those are wonderful, and I highly encourage you when, we, when, we're, when they meet to get involved with them. They're sweet times of fellowship. But how cool would it be if we went even deeper and like small groups of men and small groups of women got together and we confessed our sins to one another. We confessed our sins and we praise God and we, we challenge each other to, to live, to be more Christ-like in our work, in our day-to-day lives. How sweet would that be? How good would that, would that be? And Christ, his, He says in John 17, I, man, I pray that for y'all. I, he, he's praying that for us. That we would dwell together in unity for a purpose so that people will know that God sent Him. Though I, I referenced a song a few weeks ago when I preached that they will know we are Christians by our love, by our love. They will know we are Christians by our love. That song comes from John 17. 
They will know we are Christians because we love each other and we dwell in unity and that will attract them to the church where they'll hear about Christ and they'll come to know Jesus. How cool is that? That is our job. That's the, probably the easiest way we can be missional in our day-to-day lives is just to love one another and to spend time with one another doing normal daily, daily things. That's the easiest way to be missional in our day-to-day lives. I have just a couple more things to say and we'll be done. But I want to take this moment right now um, before, before I get there to challenge all of us. This is a challenge to me and Rebecca as well, not just to you, to challenge all of us today, today to be intentional with one another. To not leave grace, not leave here, not leave Pine Street Elementary until we've had a, a, a deep, meaningful conversation with, with someone that maybe we don't know. I challenge you, if you want to even go further, invite someone out to lunch today. Share a meal with someone today. Even if it's, hey, come, even if y'all with little ones, even if it's, hey, come back to our house and we'll have sandwiches. Have a, have a, a deep and meaningful, um, re- start a deep, meaningful relationship today. And be intentional about it. If that doesn't work, if you can't do that today, I challenge you that sometime this week, be intentional and say, hey, let's hang out and give a date. Um, one of, I had a, a, a sociology class some, some years ago, but I remember the guy always made the point, he's like, so often we, we say, hey, we should hang out sometime. We should spend some time together. And we never do. Because it's just kind of the curt, like, polite Southern thing. Hey, let's hang out sometime. It's not until we actually, hey, let's hang out. Are you free Thursday? Oh, no, that's more. How about Friday? How about lunch on Monday? Like, until you actually set a date, you're never going to hang out with the people you want to hang out with. We have to be intentional to dwell together in unity. And when we do that, David says, it's like the dew of Hermon. It's refreshing. It's life-giving. So I want to make that challenge to all of us today to, to set some time, spend some time with one another. Christ is clear. When we, unite, when we unite with each other as a church, as His church, the world will see and they'll want to know more. Your neighbors who isolate themselves always will see that you have like different families coming over to your house every day and they're going to be like, What's going on there? And so when you invite them over, they're going to be like, I want to go see what's going on. How do they have so many friends? Like that, that happens, and that's the purpose of our love for one another. God's purpose for our unity is, is deeply missional, and it creates a cycle of unity and a cycle of love. Because as people get drawn to the love that we have for one another, they come to know Christ, they love Christ, and they love His church, and it just keeps going. So two, two things, two more things. For those, in y'all, for those of y'all in here who've never experienced that unity, who've never experienced unity that has been um, life-giving to you, I pray that you're, you would come and talk to someone today. I pray that someone comes and talks to you um, today. And then when they come talk to you, say, hey, can you tell me more about this? Why did you come talk to me? And, and, and have those discussions. If that's not your job, come talk to me. Come When Justin's back, come talk to Justin. Talk to one of our elders. We'd love nothing more than to walk you through what it means to be in unity with Christ and how that is completely...
completely and totally life-changing. Last thing. I like to end with some questions for y'all. Um, I, I did this last time. I asked just one question. I'm asked, I've got four questions for y'all to contemplate as we um, live our lives um, day to day. It's four questions we can keep coming back to that can remind you of the sermon of reminding you that we are supposed to be united with one another. We're supposed to dwell, to live in unity. And that, that the, this is it. The first question is just to ask yourself, hey, am I unified with, with those around me? Do I have relationships, like deep, meaningful relationships with those around us? Guys, I'm picking on, on the men today. I'm, I am one, so it's easier. Like, it, this is more than just having your neighbor over to watch the football game where you never say a word to one another and then they leave after the game is over. Like, I'm talking about deep, meaningful relationships. Are you connected? Are you united with those around you? Second question is a little bit more pointed. Are you in deep fellowship? Are you united with other Christians? You, the answer to that is, is somewhat yes, because you're here at Grace, and so we're united in worship. But I'm talking on a day-to-day basis. Are you having conversations with other Christians? Are you confessing sins to other Christians? Are you um, looking to, to spread Christ's word with other Christians? Are you in fellowship with other Christians? Question three is, what steps are you taking to unite with your brothers and sisters in Christ? That kind of stems from that second question. Are you actually being intentional? Are you meeting with people and setting dates? What steps are you taking to to be unified with your brothers and sisters in Christ? And the last question is, and we're we're done. Are you showing God's love to those around you by your love of His church? Are you telling people about grace? It's kind of the question. Are, Are you so in love with grace? Are you so in love with this body of believers, with His church, that you are inviting people here? That you're, you're telling people about what you heard on Sunday, probably when Justin preaches. But are you, are, you, are, you, are you telling people about this place? Are you telling about the unity that you share here? And if so, how can, if you're not, how can you do that? Where can you do that more in your life? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word that, that you call us to unity. That you call us to know um, one another in a, in a deep sense. And that comes from you. That you want to know us in a deep sense. And you want us to know you in a deep, in a deep real way. So I pray that um, all of us here today, that, that you just open up our hearts, you open up our lives. That we, we see the ways that we are isolating ourselves in our day-to-day lives. That we're following the Ron Swanson model. That we're, that we're not pursuing... Um, deep, real relationships, and that you open us up to those relationships. I pray that Grace Church would be a beacon in Spartanburg because of our love for one another. And because of our love for one another, other people just need to know what's it, what, what is it all about. And they come and know you through that love. Lord, let, let that be what Grace is known for. Let it be known for our love for one another, our unity that we share. It is in your son's precious and holy name I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.